0: All right. Well, I'll start off with this inauguration days. I don't know if you guys know what inauguration means, but they these days they they hold a mighty significance because inauguration days, what inaugural means, it it marks the beginning of an institution, an activity, or a period in office. So. You know, whenever time a president gets elected, they have an inauguration day. The first day they're in that elected president starts their assistant office, starts their presidential four-year term. And and, we, and, and so we celebrate that. We celebrate inauguration days of new institutions. For instance, our church anniversary, we celebrated that two weeks ago. And really what we're doing is we're remembering the first Sunday worship service that our church, SBC Juana, ever had, right? That's the inaugural service inauguration days also marks we, we, we celebrate them because they mark they mark a new era they mark a fresh start day and, and really through that we, we have a sense of renewed hope every time we feel like we can start new don't we and that's what we're going to see in Leviticus 9 we're going to see the first inaugural service that marks the beginning of israel's priestly system And what we're going to see here in Leviticus 9, and we're going to cover the whole chapter today, so you can take your Bibles, turn with me there right now. And we're we're going to see here that through these ordained priests that you guys saw last week in chapter 8, through these ordained priests, Israel is going to now gain access to God through the sacrificial offerings. And as we read through chapter 9, I want us to continue to remind ourselves where we're coming from. Where, where all this is, where the storyline of God is going, right? And let me remind you of the overarching storyline. Leviticus is answering the question: How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? And that's really, that, that's like one of the key questions throughout Scripture, and, and specifically in Leviticus, we're trying to answer this question. And the answer so far that we find in Leviticus is that it's through the priests and through the sacrifices. The sacrifices representing a substitutionary atonement that we need to atone for our sins through a substitute that provides the necessary cleansing and forgiveness for us to draw near to God. But it's also done through a mediator, the priest, of someone who can intercede on behalf of God and the people. So what I'm going to do is I want to read through the entire chapter because I feel like it's just good to hear God's word, hear the law of God here, and... And kind of just let it soak in. And so think through that question. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? Let me read Leviticus chapter 9. Starting in verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offered them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meetings, and all the congregation, man, all of Israel, all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. and Moses said, "This is the thing that the Lord that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you." Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses the flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's son handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar and they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece in the head and he burned them on the altar he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offerings on the altar then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one and he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule and he presented the grain offering took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning then he killed the ox and the ram In the sacrifice of peace offering for the people and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar but the fat pieces of the oxen of the ram the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and long lobe of liver they put the fat pieces on the breasts and he burned the fat pieces on the altar but the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded verse 22 then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from off, from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meetings. And then when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is God's word. We see here the first inaugural service of the burnt, of the offerings, of all the offerings. And on this day, here Israel is watching with a certain anticipation. They're watching with anticipation to see whether or not truly the holy God, whether he will truly come down and dwell with them. Because if he does, then perhaps Israel can truly be God's holy nation of priests who will then usher the rest of the world into God's presence. This here is actually the world in a sense. We are all reading this and we're wondering, can Israel be the redemption of the rest of humanity. And through this inaugural service, what we're gonna see here is we're gonna be reminded that the central focus of our worship, the central central focus of our existence, of humanity, is the glory of God, the glory of God. And so here, I'm gonna have three points. We're gonna see the purpose of worship, the order of worship, and the blessing of worship. First, the purpose of worship. And in verse 1 through 6, we, we see here that worship has a purpose to it. And that purpose is God's glory. The passage here begins with the eighth day, right? On verse 1, it says, On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons. And so, so the eighth day here is a reminder that before this, in, in chapter 8, Aaron and his sons, they went through the seven-day orientation. I'm right. uh, so not orientation. They went through 7 days ordination, Right. They're, they're being ordained, and it took seven days for them to be ordained, for them to be consecrated and prepared to, to do their priestly ministry. A reminder, Aaron and his sons are the ones chosen by God to be the priests of Israel for all generations. And so Aaron, he was spending already seven days, right? He was spending already seven days in the Tent of Meeting. Uh, it says this in chapter 8, right? Chapter 8, verse 35, it says, At the entrance of the ten of Meetings, you shall remain day and night for seven days. Performing what the Lord has charged you, so that you do not die. For I have commanded, for I, for so have I have commanded. So, God said, Aaron, you're going to be here in this tent seven days. You're going to be making sacrifices, burning offerings, but you're also going to be eating the fat of the offerings, so you're so you survive, you don't die, and so you're going to be doing this for seven days straight, before God. And now on the eighth day. So after seven days, after a week has gone by, on the eighth day, Aaron and his sons came out to attend a meeting, finishing the ordination process, and now, com- and now they're commanded to they're ready. They're commanded to preside over the first worship service of Israel. Now the eighth day, it, it holds a special significance throughout the Old Testament. Uh, if you read the Old Testament, you come across the eighth day. It comes up quite often, actually, especially in Leviticus. Uh, for instance. Uh, in Leviticus chapter twelve, when a woman bears a male child, bears a son, she's declared unclean for seven days, and then on the eighth day, she's now no longer considered unclean. But the son now is then circumcised, right? Circumcised on the eighth day. Um, and another example in Leviticus chapter uh, twenty, in chapter uh, fourteen, uh, a leopard who is healed from his leprous disease. He is to go through a cleansing process of that last seven days. And then on the eighth day, he would then make a sacrificial offering before the Lord. So there's, there's eight days significant here. And what's happening here is that the seven day period, what's, what's going on here, what what does the seven day remind you of? When, that, when we say seven days, what does it remind you of in scripture? Creation. Creation. Right? It, it, the, the seven day period echoes creation. God is creating and making things new and says he's consecrating his creation for glory. And so in a similar sense, these seven day periods, these week long periods of is they're, they're this consecration period where the, where the person or the nation is being made ready to dedicate themselves to worship God. And on the eighth day, which marks the end of it, that person or that nation is now ready to worship God and give him glory. And so, the whole point here about this first service happening on the eighth day is really saying that, it's really to teach Israel, hey, Israel, you are, in a sense, the new Eden. You're, in a sense, the new Eden. This is where God is now going to dwell with you. Remember, remember, Eden is a place where God was supposed to dwell with his people and his creation. But because of sin, that they got kicked out of Eden. So, how is, how are, how is God supposed to dwell now with his people? Israel here in a sense is being prepared as New Eden, where God and His people can live in harmony. And the way that harmony is kept is through sacrifices. The way harmony is kept is through sacrifices. And when we see here a list of sacrifices, right? Verse, uh, verse two and three. There's a list of sacrifices that's being that that the priests have to do. And I want us to first. I want us to really focus in on. The purpose behind these sacrifices. In verse 4, at the end of it, it says, Today, the Lord will appear to you. Today, the Lord will appear to you. Well, What does that mean? In verse 6, Moses says this, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, so these sacrifices, to do them. Why? That the glory of the Lord may appear to you. The way God appears to us is through a display of His glory. What does that mean? Glory. Glory, literally translated into Hebrew, it, it means heaviness. It means there's this heaviness to them, there's, there's weight to them. Now, so so glory literally means heavy. Now, when we say God has glory, we're not, ta- we're not saying that God is like overweight or anything like that, right? If God steps on a, stale, on a scale, it doesn't mean he's just gonna be breaking it every time. What we're talking about here with weightiness to God, we're talking really about his importance, his significance. We're talking about the weightiness of his character. Glory, a definition I find probably best to define glory is, is the weightiness of God's character. Glory is, is hard to define but here's the thing about glory, you know it when you see it. You know it when you see it. For instance, you when you when you're, I remember after all the snow that's happened, uh, you guys saw like all the white snow on the mountains, right? After all this rain that happened, you guys saw the mountains. I don't know what sense you guys got, but there's every time you come in a sense of awe, and you're of wonder. Isn't there a certain like weightiness that you feel inside? That you're just like, oh my goodness. This is something that's significant. This is something that's majestic. This is something that you 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 recognize. What you're experiencing is extremely immense. It's unique and it's significant. That's the type of weightiness that we're talking about here. When we're talking about God's glory, when it's on display, it's hard to define exactly what it is. But you know it when you see it because you feel it in your soul. Moses here tells Israel that these offerings, when you make these offerings, these sacrifices today, you will see the glory of God. God will appear in his glory. And you will imagine that when Moses said this to Israel, you imagine that Israel was probably like you know trembling with excitement. but that might not be the case here. Remember the times when God appeared to Israel. And remember, at this time of Leviticus, Israel's history is not super long. So remember the times when God has appeared to Israel in his glory. For instance, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. In Exodus chapter 19, Israel brought out of captivity from Egypt, already crossed the Red Sea, and they're wandering through the wilderness, and they land at Mount Sinai, which is where they're still at in Leviticus. They land at Mount Sinai. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. And it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, it says this, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. When God's glory appeared at Mount Sinai, the people trembled. In Exodus 33, Moses went up Mount Sinai and he's talking to God. He's interceding for his people and he tells God, he yes, God because he can't help it. He just this, this is the this is the heart desire of Moses. He just tells God, show me, please show me your glory. And what does God say to him? God says, No. You cannot see my face. And meaning you cannot see my full glory. Right? God doesn't literally have like a face. You cannot see my full glory, for anyone who sees my face will die. And so God says God hid Moses behind the rock, let his glory pass by him, and allow Moses to see his backside of his glory, which is really just figurative, symbolic, symbolic language for saying God just allowed Moses to see a glimpse of his glory, a peak. This is a small little preview, a trailer, but not the full glory. And then in Exodus chapter 40, the very last chapter of Exodus, right before we hit Leviticus, The tabernacle is built, and once it's done being built, the tent of meetings, it says in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, that the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Filled the tabernacle. And verse 35 says this, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Moses, the, the leader of Israel, the righteous man, was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Again, it's a reminder to Moses, you cannot see my face lest you die. You see here that God's glory, yes, it should be a blessing to us. It should fill us with awe and wonder. But don't be blind to the fact that God's glory is also very terrifying. God's glory is also very terrifying. Remember Isaiah 6. When Isaiah was brought, given a vision, he saw the throne of God and all his glory. He said what? Woe is me. Isaiah thought he was going to die. He saw the glory of God. That's how terrifying God's glory is. So the question that must be ringing through the minds of Israel when Moses says, when you do all these things that the Lord has commanded you, God's glory will appear before you. What must be going through the minds of Israel during that time is this. If God's glory shows up, will it devour them in judgment? Will it fill them with blessing? And they don't know. See, I don't think they're necessarily trembling with excitement at this point i don't think they're eagerly anticipating i think they're waiting to see whether or not they'll live or die whether or not god will devour them in judgment or whether or not god's glory will be a blessing this then helps us understand why the sacrifices then in this service and why the sacrifice we've read about so far in leviticus why is so important and it's important because these sacrifices, they're not just a ritual, right? It's not just, hey, just do this for me. That's, there's, a, there's a point to the sacrifices, and the point is life or death. It's whether or not God will accept Israel or not. And again, the sacrifices answer the main question of Leviticus. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? In other words, the sacrifices here are meant to bring God closer to bring people closer to see God in his glory now how does that work we see here in verse 7 to 21 chapter 9 the order of worship and the order of worship is very important here because the order of worship tells us exactly how this works together how these sacrifices bring people closer to God so the first thing that we see here the first thing we see here in verse 8 is Aaron has to bring a calf for a sin offering which was for himself that's very specific he's to bring a sin offering for himself and a burnt offering for himself all right and so we see here that Aaron's command to do that so why is that well first of all I want you guys to note that Aaron's if you guys been tracking along the details here it says here that Aaron's supposed to bring a calf of the sin offering now when God gave the law the sin offerings he told them that when a priest brings a sin offering, he's supposed to bring a bull to sacrifice. So why did God tell Aaron to bring a calf for the sin offering, right? Aaron's a priest. Isn't he supposed to bring a bull? That's part of the law. Well, we, the commentators believe, and I, I will agree with them, that God told Aaron to bring a calf. Because remember, calf, Aaron, Aaron was there when Israel erected the golden calf, and Israel rebelled against God and created an idol. and Aaron is the one who allowed all that. In fact, Aaron's the one who said, "Come, bring all the gold in let's melt this, let's make a God for you to worship." Most likely what's happening here is God is saying, "Bring a sin offering for that. You are now priests of Israel. I've given you my commands. I've, I've, I have ordained you." but I need you to, be repen- to repent of that specific sin. And so for that golden calf, for that golden calf that was erected as an idol, a real calf is now killed, sacrificed, and burned at the altar. That's probably what's happening here is that Aaron is bringing a calf or a sin offering to repent of that specific sin. And in verse 12, then Aaron brings a burnt offering for himself. A burnt offering for himself and he here uses a ram and both the sin the burnt offering focuses upon the sinfulness of Aaron Aaron here was told to bring these because he needed to still atone for his sins now in case you're wondering what's happening here just again think think for instance what's what's going on here this is the eighth day meaning Aaron has already spent seven days you know, making sa- making offerings, eating, being, spending time, attending meetings. He's doing all this stuff, and it says that he's doing all this for seven days to make atonement for himself before God. He's consecrating himself for God, and then when he comes here, God says, "No, nope, that's not enough. He's, even before you bring all these other sacrifices for Israel, you still need to atone for your sin." This really shows us. This really shows us how much God cares about holiness. his priests there's a huge need for the priests to constantly be made holy so that they can be a mediator between god and israel so aaron aaron does that and then in verse 15 aaron now can he's now allowed to present the offerings of the people because now he's been cleansed now he's been dedicated to the Lord through his sin and burnt offering. And now he brings the people's offering. So now he brings a sin offering for the people and a burnt offering for the people. All right. And so again, we, we see here that there's an order to all this, right? The Aaron's sin offering, burnt offering. Now the Israel's sin offering, burnt offering. Then it says here that he is, he's now to bring a grain offering. And after the grain offering in verse 18, he's now to bring a peace offering. So we see here in an order that's happening here. And the order, what it does here, is that the order, sorry, the order here represents how a sinner must approach God to worship him. This sin offering is what purifies us. Is what cleanses the sinner of his sinfulness. You have to be cleansed before you can approach God. But more than being cleansed, a burnt offering atones for that sinner, meaning that burnt offering, remember, it, it was an animal, that whole animal was being burned as a perfect substitute for that sinner. So that way, God can now accept that sinner into his presence. This is about acceptance, about atonement and acceptance before God. The grain offering was a tribute to God, a dedication to him. It was an offering of thanksgiving and a sign of dedication to God. And you can only give that after you've been atoned of your sins. And in the peace offering, then is a fellowship offering. It's a celebration. It's a celebration that you're now in fellowship with God and His people. And and so you can't mess up this order. You can't just offer the peace offering first because you're not you're sinful. You haven't cleansed yourself yet. How can you be in a fellowship with God? You have to make sure to or, you have to make sure you follow the order. The order here matters the order here reminds us, reminds us as Christians today, that we all need a way to bridge the gap of sin and enter into the presence of God. Sin, sin created a divide. It created a divide between us and God, a gap wider than the Grand Canyon. It's sin is a direct rebellion against God I need you, you guys need to recognize this that when God is angry at your sin it's not like a parent that's being angry alright when God is angry at sinners it's not like a parent being angry and putting you in timeouts and you're only there for a short period of time God here God here is so angry that he banished you from his presence Remember again what happened in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, and yes they were given the curse, they were given that punishment, but they were also banned from the Garden, banned from God's presence. You see we're all on like God's most wanted list, and so wherever caught his presence in sin, he will indeed judge us, and that's why the order here matters so much. You, you have to make sure you atone for your sins, create thus creating access to God, and then worship God and celebrate your fellowship with Him. But what God has shown us here, our duty sacrifices specifically, is that the only way to access God, the only way to atone for our sins, is through blood. There must be death. Blood must be involved. And so Aaron and his sons did all this. And, and again, imagine just what Aaron's going through. He's meticulously following all these instructions, right? Making sure he's offering, making the right offering, following the right order. And imagine then as he's doing all this, the people are also watching. And they're watching, you're like, man, don't mess up there. Man, make sure you, you get out all the fat and burn it all. Like, like they're, they're watching with great fear and anticipation because if Aaron messes up, what happens? They might die. So again, Aaron son they're, they're, they're doing all this. Israel is watching. Imagine the pressure on all of them. But it says here, and we're going to see here how Israel actually doesn't get judged. They get blessed. right? It says here that Aaron, in verse 22, Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and he blessed them. He blessed them. So at this point, when Aaron gives his blessing to them, we don't know yet if God accepted the offerings. Not for sure, at least. The blessing here is almost like a benediction, right? It's like what we do after service. We give you a benediction. It's like, you know, grace of God be with you. May the Trinity be with you, you know, and all that. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to give you guys protection, right? As you guys go out, to go out on the grace of God. In the same way, Aaron here is kind of giving the benediction, an act of declaring God's grace and peace upon the people. But then it says here, in verse 23, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. It's the first time we see Moses step into the tent of meeting. Aaron was in there already, right? During the seven days of his ordination, Moses now steps in. Before he couldn't, right? They step in. you can Imagine the people—they're walking, they're in there, they're wondering, "What did he die? What if they never come back out? Well, who, if they die, who will mediate for for them?" who will lead them if they die what will God do to them to enter in and it says with great sigh of relief and when they came out they blessed the people man imagine the relief of the people when they saw that Aaron and Moses came out at tent of meeting and when they came out they blessed the people and here's the results the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. How did the glory of God appear to them? Appeared to them through a consuming fire, a consuming fire. And again, before in Israel time, Israel has seen God come as a consuming fire before. Before it always came as a sign of judgment, right? There, consuming fire. It came down, stopped the chariots of Egypt, right from from chasing after them. Fire is also the one that, that lit the way, led Israel through the wilderness. And here now the consuming fire comes down and they can be imagined what was coming down for them. But no, it comes down and instead, instead of consuming Israel, it consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. So at this time, again, imagine that the burnt offering was already on the altar. So that means there's fire burning. But as you all know, it takes time for things to burn up completely, right? It's most likely right now, it smells like barbecue. It's just, it's just burning, right? It's just constantly burning, churning, burning away. But this consuming fire, this hot white fire just consumes everything in an instant. That's what's going on here. That's how God's glory appears. That's how we know this is God accepting their offering. And that's what fills the people with awe. It's, it's not the regular fire that Aaron lit to burn the offerings, but it's this consuming fire that comes from God and completely wipes out everything on that altar. And so the people saw this and they fell on their faces, meaning they worshiped the Lord They recognize here that the consuming fire means that God has accepted their offering. God has accepted their offering because God has shown them their glory and they lived. God has shown them their glory and they lived. This, this, this demonstration of majesty, awesomeness, fierce judgment, and yet also grace and mercy all together in this one appearance of God in His glory. We see it all the characters of God I want us to take a moment now and return back to the concept of God's glory to to think about this for a moment for us and what it means for us what does it mean for us to experience God's glory what is God's glory As, as I defined before God's glory is the weightiness of his character that every aspect of who God is contains an infinite weight of glory When we read through scripture, uh, the Bible tells us that whenever the people ask to see God and God appears, it's always, it's always a reference to, God, to the people seeing a manifestation of God's glory. In other words, God's glory is related to his felt presence. His presence is being felt, it's being seen. Right again, we see this in Mount Sinai, right? God's glory shows up in lightning and earthquake at the tabernacle. God's glory manifests itself in a cloud, and, and it's this dense cloud that's impenetrable. And here, in Leviticus chapter nine, God's glory appears as a consuming fire. Now, it's why the Psalms constantly declares, right? Let your glory be all over the earth. In other words, when we see creation, we're marveling at the glory of our creator. And so, that's when we when we see Scripture, it, it tells us that everything that God does is for the glory of His name. For instance, in Psalm seventy-nine verse nine, the psalmist here cries out, "Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for Your name's sake." You see what's happening here? We see. The psalmist here is saying we're going to experience salvation, deliverance, and atonement. And all these acts of God, of Him doing all this in their lives, is to display His glory. Psalm 85 verse 9. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Again, we see salvation is not just an act of God saving us. Right? salvation is not just God saying you're no longer in hell salvation is an act of God bringing us into his presence so that he can dwell with his people it's for his glory to be seen and felt by our hearts so then guys why do you come to worship God? why do you come to church. To worship God. Because if it's not for the glory of God. If it's not to see the glory of God. It's for nothing. It's for nothing. Imagine if Aaron right, went through all these motions of sacrificing these animals. And again, it's like offering after offering. Animal after animal. It's doing this all day. don't know how long this takes. right? probably an all day event. He's doing all this. And at the end of it all, nothing happens. Imagine how disappointed everyone must have felt. And what was all that for? That all those sacrifices would have been for vain. If God's glory is not the aim of our worship, then our act of worship is rudderless. Without aim, it's without purpose. God's glory has to be the target has to be the center has to be the purpose of everything without God's glory the songs that we sing are better for a karaoke lounge without God's glory the sermons are better fit for debate clubs without God's glory our prayers are nothing more than just mindless chanting we worship God because we want to see him glorified we want to see God glorified. That, that means we want to see God displayed in His presence felt. It means that when you walk into church, when you walk into the sanctuary, you walk into service, you're suddenly filled with a sense of reverence and holiness. There's weightiness that comes upon you. You should act like this is a holy place where I'm going to encounter God. When you sing, you're overflowing with thankfulness and joy towards your Savior. When you hear a sermon, you're feeling the power of the Spirit. And when you pray, you're sensing the nearness of your Father. God's glory being felt in your hearts. Turn me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we see how God's glory is a constant theme throughout Scripture. And what it's meant to do is it's meant to dwell amongst His people. And it says here in John chapter 1 verse 14 that the Word became flesh. Manifested physically for us to see. But more than that, the Word became flesh and it dwelt among us. And we have seen what His glory Glorious as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're seeing here that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is the glory of God manifested in flesh so that we can see, so that people can see God's glory dwelling amongst His people. Jesus, the perfect image of God, filled with His glory, now in the flesh for our eyes to behold. And in verse 18, says this, No one has ever seen God, but the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known through Christ. God makes His glory known to us. But when Jesus became flesh, He became more than just a manifestation of His glory. When Jesus became flesh, he did a lot more than that because if all Jesus was was a display of God's glory and that's all He did, then He would still be here on earth for us to see Him. But Jesus ascended to heaven. Meaning we no longer can see Him with our very own eyes. Why is that? Because Jesus was more than just a manifestation of God's glory. He's also our great high priest. And as our great high priest, what He did is He opened up a way for us to enter into God's presence. He gave us a way He bridged the gap of sin and created access for us to God. In Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7 says this, verse 25, you guys can turn me there too. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says here about Jesus that consequently he is able to save the uttermost of those who draw near to God. Right? He's able to, Save those who draw near to God through Him. Because He always lives to make an intercession for them. So that's what Jesus is doing now. That's why He's not here on earth. He's right now interceding before the throne of God on our behalf. But this is the great thing about Jesus. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. Like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. So remember, that's what Aaron did, right? Had sacrificed first for his own sins and then for the people. But Jesus did, he did not do any of that. Says that he did this once and for all. He sacrificed himself once and for all. (laughs) And when he did that... It has atoned our sins for all eternity. Jesus then is both our ticket to heaven and our greatest treasure, right? He is both the way to heaven, but He's also the glory God which we long to see. He is the reason why we worship and the object of our worship. For in Christ we see that the glory of God. In Christ we see that the glory of God is not a burden of judgments but an overwhelming outpour of blessing. When God's glory shows up in Christ, it's not judgment, but it's blessing to us. Is Jesus the object of your worship? When we talk about sin, sin sin takes your eyes off. The glory, of God. The sin of bitterness, it glorifies judgment. The sin of lust glorifies sex. The sin of greed glorifies money. And all these things, they become sin, right? When God is not involved. Right, this, when it glorifies judgment, the sin of love is glorifying sex, glorifying money, and all these other things that can glorify. All these things become sin because God is not involved. But here's the thing. When God is involved in that the center of it, all these things that were considered sin before becomes blessings in our life. That's what Christ did for us. See, when glory to God, when the glory of Christ becomes the aim of our lives, we truly experience God's blessings. As Israel did when Aaron came out and blessed them. Right? Judgment becomes a blessing because God, in His glory, becomes your avenger. Sex becomes a blessing because God, in His glory, gives sex as a gift to marriages. Money becomes a blessing because we become a steward of God's resources and use it for His glory. Ultimately, God's glory becomes a blessing for God's people because when we do everything for the glory of God, we experience the very presence of God in our lives. You guys think that the glory of God is some just abstract idea that we just always say like, it's like our Christian mantra, just do it for the glory of God. It's much more than that. It truly changes everything in your life into a blessing. Make the glory of God the aim of your worship and the aim of your lives. The big idea for this message is this, that Jesus Christ blesses his people blesses God's people by manifesting the glory of God as the centerpiece of their worship and he does that by dying on the cross for our sins ushering us into God's presence let me end with this one day one day everyone will die we will all die you will all die one day just just a simple fact alright one day we will all die when you die, and when every person dies, they will come face to face before God. That's that's truth. You'll come face to face before God, and you will see God in His glory. But for unbelievers, when they die and they see God and they see His glory, that glory judges them. And they will face eternal death. But for believers. When we come before God and we see His glory, we don't see just God in His glory. Instead, we see God in His glory in the face of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is interceding on your behalf, even in the eternity, before the throne of God. Jesus is our High Priest, but He's also God's glory before us guys do you long to see God's glory in the face of Jesus make Jesus the center of your worship glorify his name alone and one day you will see the full glory of God in the face of Christ one day you will dwell with your Lord and Savior in eternal peace that is what we all long for And that's what we will all receive because of what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word that allows us to see, allows us to see, Lord, how we can access your glory. And God, I I pray that, Lord, as we consider then, as we consider what it means to come to Christ, what it means, Lord, to believe in Him, what it means, Lord, to worship Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we see, we see Your grace and mercy in its full weight of glory. We see the kindness and the love of Jesus in the full weight of Your glory. But most of all, Lord, we see Christ as a meteor, but also the object of our worship. And that, Lord, when we worship you, when we, when we make the center of our worship, the glory of God, the, your glory, Lord, may it truly fill us up. May it truly put this weight of significance of all of majesty into our hearts. And may it bless the rest of our lives. Lord, I pray, God, that we will come to see you for who you are. The glorious God, the heavens near earth. And now, Lord, we we will we will just be humble before you. So, Lord, thank you again for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for for sending Jesus to be our high priest. But thank you, Lord, for manifesting Your glory in Jesus, so that Lord, we we can all long for the day when we'll come to meet Jesus face to face. And behold your glory in your Son. I pray all this in your name. Amen.